Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. I will never celebrate New Year's again. By Alfred Bester. This is first published in Rogue, a uh, magazine for men, uh, from February 1963. And um, you're going to read it for us, I hope, Eric. And then sure, we'll discuss do. it. Great. I will never celebrate New Year's again. There's this producer named Tony who gives me a lot of work, so I have to remain on good terms with him. Part of the burden is going to the traditional New Year's party his wife, Gigi, throws. It's a drag, formal clothes, formal manners, champagne, which I hate, and talent being forced to entertain the guests. So this New Year's, I decided to miss it and stay home and have a quiet party. I invited my current girl, Martha, and another couple, bought a few magnums for for them and stocked up on whiskey. I was preparing the ingredients for a light supper, chicken a la king, salad, pity fours, and coffee, when the phone rang. It was Gigi. What the hell is this I hear? You're running a rival brawl? No, Gigi. That's the word going around. It's a lie. I'm staying home because I don't feel well, and I've asked a few people up. How many? Three. Who? I told her. Damn you, she said. I want them. All right, Gigi, you can have them. I'll cancel and go to the bed. So I did. But around 10 o'clock, I got, I began to get lonely and restless. I prowled around the house and finally noticed this invitation on the bulletin board. The directors were giving a ball and I'd been blackmailed into buying a ticket for $20, which entitled me to a chance for a door prize supper dancing until 3 a.m. I arrived just as they were drawing for the door prizes. I've never won anything in my life, so I paid no attention. I sat down at the table with the guy who'd sold me my ticket and began drinking and chatting with him and the others. The cases of wine, the cameras, the jewelry, and the perfumes were distributed, and the MC finally called One Stutz Bearcat, number 319. I ignored it, but my blackmailer exclaimed, Hey, isn't that the number of the ticket I sold you? I looked at my stub. It was 319. I stepped up to the dance floor where this lovely little bearcat painted fire engine red was displayed. It was big enough to hold a kid and had a battery motor. I was in a daze. It looked as though 63 was promising to break my customary run of bad luck. I presented my stub, got a nice hand, and was about to claim my prize when a frantic character appeared waving a stub. I'm 319, he said. We compared stubs. We both had 319. There'd been some kind of goof at the printers. I was resigned. Have you got any kids, I asked. Three. I haven't got any. Take the car. My host tried to cheer me up and took me to a Park Avenue party in a giant duplex apartment featuring a sweeping staircase. I tried to hook up with a woman and was doing all right with a Hungarian girl when the dance band broke into black and tan, the classic strippers number. My Hungarian began to strip. She did a professional parade, shedding gloves, jewelry, and clothes while the guests howled. Then she started up the stairs, discarding lingerie. She reached the head of the stairs, dropped the ultimate essential, turned the corner, and disappeared. 
There was a fanfare and the band began a conga. A conga line of men formed and went up the stairs after the Hungarian. I left. I went up to Smalls in Harlem, couldn't enjoy myself there, but ran into a couple of young writers who dragged me over to Morningside Heights to a fraternity party. There was a stench of beer, the floor was sticky, a four-piece band whammed and twanged, and about 50 couples were twisting. Now I not only felt lonely, I felt old. Suddenly there was a hissing whoosh, and a cloud of snow appeared in the room. Some tweed had pulled a CO2 fire extinguisher off the wall and was running around shooting up the girl's skirts. They squealed and scattered, and one of them took refuge behind me. On closer inspection, she proved to be much older than the type you usually find at a fraternity dance. She was about 30, with acid red hair cut short, a sinewy, active body, and nervous hands. She wore a sort of Goldwyn Follies spangled dress and gold pumps with bows. She was alive and attractive, but vulgar and common. And her name turned out to be, God save the mark, Torchy. You look like a gent, Torchy said. Will you, for Christ's sake, get me out of here? This is kid stuff. Where's your date? Passed out, she muttered. We left, got a cab, and drove down to 50th and Madison Avenue, where I live. Torchy sat in her corner and said nothing. I was tired, unhappy, and not interested. But I had to go through the motions of the gent. I offered her a choice of going in the cab to wherever she was going or coming up to my place for a drink. Boy, I need a drink, she said. Okay, but no funny business. At four in the morning, I said wearily, who do you think I am, Paul Bunyan? So come on, I'm freezing. We went up to my place and I started a fire in the fireplace. What's that, kennel coal? Torchy asked. She wandered around the living room, staring at my books, pictures, and records. Gee, she said, I never been in a place like this before. You got class. What's it like to have class? I wouldn't know, Torchy. Says you, this place is simply elegant. What's in there? The kitchen. She explored. Jesus, you cook, huh? What? That was going to be chicken a la king. You cook French. Wow. What's in there? My workshop. She investigated. Christ, more books. You must have thousands. What are you, a publisher? A writer. Yeah, it figures. We went down to the living room and enjoyed the fire while we had drinks. We talked. Torchy was so naturally giving and receptive that she warmed me more than the fire. She wanted to know all about the books and the records and the pictures and what I wrote and had I traveled and did I have girls and what they were like and was I as nice to them as I was to her. After an hour of this, she began to make me feel ashamed and ungrateful. Suddenly she said, I got to call Patchog. Patchog? Yeah, Patchog Long Island. It's where I live. I got to tell them I ain't coming home tonight. The phone's out of order, I told her. Go on, she grinned. She came to me and ran her hand through my hair. What kind of think you think I am? I wouldn't hang a long distance call on you. The phone's in the bedroom, I said faintly. Yeah, I know, alongside the bed. She went to the closet for her coat. I'll call from the hotel across the street. They must have public phones. Don't be a fool, Torchy. Phone from here and louse up the best time I ever had in my life. Nothing doing. I'm not grabby. I'll be right back. Wait a minute. I'll go with you. Stay here and make the chicken. I told you I'm hungry. You can't go out in the coat, out in that light coat. Wear mine. I threw my heavy coat over her shoulders. She turned and gave me a feathery kiss. 
This is the best New Year's I've ever had, she whispered. I'm beginning to think so too, Torchy. You're an ace, she said, and scampered out. I went into the kitchen and started the sauce bechamel for the chicken. I'd finished slicing the pimento into strips and was getting the green peas out of the freezer when there was a heavy knock on the door. It's open, I yelled. The knock repeated. I went to the door and opened it. A cop stood there. You bester, he asked. In the flesh, what's the matter? Hi-fi too loud? You better come downstairs, he said. There's a dame in your coat. That's all right. I loaned it to her. There's been an accident, he said. Come on. I followed him down to Madison Avenue, completely bewildered. It was getting light outside. On the bleak street, there was a cab skewed against the curb before the hotel. A little crowd of spectators was clustered around a crumpled figure in the gutter. A livid pool of blood was spreading slowly from her body, staining its way into my new year. Story packs a punch. Yeah. I, uh, I, did I tell you where I got this? I mean, there's a little note at the end on the page um, saying Rogue, February 1963. Yeah, but I know it's actually, I think the copy you got is from a reprint. Yeah. So, Bester, you know, Alfred Bester, we've done one, I think one other story on this podcast by him. He's a power writer. <clears throat> but the thing is, is he didn't write that much science fiction compared to his reputation. You know, Asimov wrote thousands of books, it seems, and hundreds of stories uh, and probably dozens and dozens of science fiction novella, novellas, novelettes, novels, right? Um, yeah. He's got a reputation based on not just his output, uh, but, you know, the, the, the quality of the stories. Bester's reputation is almost entirely based on a couple of novels and the impact they had on on the science fiction community so this this story is not a science fiction story i don't think <laughs> it'd be pretty hard to argue yeah um, but it's from a sort of an associated uh thing so th i got this out of a book called redemolished which is a collection of bester fictions that had not previously been correct collected and it's almost like a uh this is all we had <laughs> he didn't write that much so th this book had i i would say a dozen or so stories um and a couple of essays and this is actually f from his column in rogue so he didn't write this as a you know a separate fiction piece that would would have been sold he had a regular column in rogue which is a competitor to to Playboy. In fact, it was explicitly designed to you know do what Playboy did, and because they're making so much money over at Playboy. So it it's weird that it's it, you, you don't usually put a fiction piece in a column. Most of his other stuff, I, I've only got one other issue of Rogue at, in hand, and it's um him writing about William Shakespeare on his 400th anniversary, right? It's not, um, it's not a fiction column in general. But with a character named Bester in it, you think, well, that maybe this isn't. Maybe this is a true story. <laughs> and I think a lot of it is true, as in, you know, writers use their own life experience. But Bester was married. <laughs> he was not a single man at this time. 
uh, he was long-term married. He didn't have kids, just like the Bester in this story. Um, And it's possible that his wife was away in uh, the December 31st, 1962. But I don't think so. I think that, that the ending is the most fictional part of the story. And the rest is sort of the compilation of life experience. He has such a good writing style that it, it all feels breezy and easy. But he also, he really packs a punch with his story. So this this ending is like a, a horror rather than a, a joke, as the rest of the story feels like, right? Well, um, you know, I, I sort of felt that it was light. I wouldn't say joke because it doesn't have that sense of reversal very much. Um, a little. I'll explain that in a second. Um, but it felt light to me on first reading. But on second and third and now uh, reading it aloud with you, Jesse, uh, it, it yeah, it packs a punch. I don't think of it as as a joke at all. Um there, there are, I think, a lot of things here that may well be from Bester's experience. Uh, the, the character who is called Bester at the end, but only at the end, um, it does say things that are true about the publishing industry and what it's like to have to work in both uh, publishing and other media, uh, which is true for, for Bester in his real life. His wife... Um, was her, her maiden surname was Gulko, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if she was Hungarian. And he was making a little in joke for mm. uh, for Raleigh, um, which is what she was known as, although her birth certificate name was Rosalind, uh, making a little joke about how he wasn't going to follow her up the stairs. Every other man in the world would follow her up the stairs, but not he. Um, and they apparently had a really a very committed, loving marriage, but it was ended by her breast cancer after 48 years. Um, so uh, there is something heavy going on. I don't believe that she was diagnosed in 1963 or 62, when this was probably written. Uh, but I find, uh, to me, on rereading, mm-hmm. this is a story about that that shows a number of things that are worth consideration. But to me, the strongest thematic thread that runs through this is the role of accident Mm. in life. Um, The the end, the last, you know, is an accident, right? An accident occurs and the blood stains um, his new year, which is a powerful phrase. But in fact, it begins with accident. Um, Tony always wants me to go to the party. Bester, we now know to call him Bester, decides he doesn't want to go. You know, here are the facts. This is what I have to do. But, you know, I don't want to do that. So I make a different plan. I adapt. I I adapt. I invite these people. But then Gigi calls up and says, no, I don't want that. And, of course, her husband, Tony, is still the guy who gives him a lot of work, so he has to adapt again. So in comes something unexpected. He adapts again. Mm-hmm. He goes to one party after another. He keeps thinking, you know, okay, he adapts. He keeps saying, okay, here's a girl I'm hitting it off with. Uh, turns out she really is not only a stripper, but a hooker. 
and he doesn't want that. So he adapts again. He goes to a party, doesn't like it, adapts again, goes to this fraternity party um, because two people just by accident, by chance, bring him along there and he meets Torchy. Now, the writer here is clearly not accidental, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the real guy, right? her name is Torchy. He sees her because she gets behind him hiding from the fog, the snow in the room, which comes from a fire extinguisher. She is particularly impressed by the fireplace in his um, apartment. And that is a big deal. 50th of Madison's an expensive address. And to have a, a fireplace as well makes it an even more expensive apartment. Um, and she knows enough about uh, these things to ask, is that kennel coal, which there is no such thing mm. as far as I can tell, but there is something called cannel coal, which is a high smoke kind of um, variety of bituminous coal. It's not the best. It's not anthracite. Uh, it's the kind you would buy if you couldn't afford better coal, which was easier on your lungs and your eyes. And it's not, of course, because he's burning it in an expensive apartment. It is anthracite, but she doesn't know that. She gets it wrong. She's trying to show off. She wants to be with this guy. Chicken a la king is not French food, by the way. <laughs> um, right? It was invented, according to different stories, either in London or in the United States. Um, she, she, she wants these things. And she says it's the best New Year's of her life. Mm. And that's an accident. And he says it is, too. He's thinking it is, too. So the whole way through the story... People have plans, excuse me, people have situations, they decide that they're going to react differently to them, they make plans, they try to pursue the plans, and accident intervenes. They try again to make a new set of plans to deal with what the world now looks like, they go along, it's looking good, and accident intervenes. But ultimately, when you come to the end, you've run out of the possibility of making further adaptation and that's what happens to Torchy and it so moves Bester that he thinks I will never celebrate New Year's again because what's to celebrate if you lay plans you make your resolutions mm. and this is what happens um, now there are loads of other issues in the story but it seems to me that this this idea of Having making plans and then chance intervenes. It's that kind of reversal that sort of is structurally reminiscent of the way a punchline mm -hmm. changes their understanding in a joke. So I think I can I can appreciate and agree with your sense that this is feels like a funny story, but I don't think it's really a joke story. I think it feels a little funny because of this continual reversal. Um, one reversal after another. But in fact, it's a reversal about the way in which life goes forward. You know, I don't have any kids. You take the Stutz Bearcat. Mm. It doesn't do me any good. And you'll notice Chicken a la King became really well known in and, and widely used um, in the 50s. Um, the Stutz Bearcat went out of production in 1938. Mm -hmm. Um, when the fraternity party guys are doing the twist in this 1963 
story. That's a dance craze that began in 1960. And hearing that music and seeing them dancing, Bester says, now I felt not only lonely, but old. Hmm. This is a story about a guy trying to go through life and, and never being able to really get ahead of it. And maybe none of us ever can because the best we can do is click off another year and every new year brings us closer to death. There will always be one more accident. Um, I found that every time I read it, the story just got more and more powerful yeah, to me. He's, he's, he's very good at what he's doing. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue in here that's just sort of frothy and fun. Um, he's, he's setting it up so that the every time there's a turn of luck um, against him, there's a turn of luck for him, um, and he rides whatever's happening. There's a uh, an adaptation of a of a movie uh, where the book is is very lightly gone over, and and the the plot is twisted such that the the noir detective doing the narration just says it's okay with me it's an <laughs> elliot gould movie um that's what's happening with our bester character here you know it, it's got to be okay with me because what else am i going to do it's new year's right and he's he, oh. he tried to go to bed but he's restless he he feels like he needs should he should be out there celebrating yeah and and uh at the end of the story it's like yeah that there's the title i will never celebrate new year's again it's nothing to celebrate here. Um, and Let me ask you. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and you know that Stutz Bearcat thing. It's a cute car, right? But when we find out it's for a kid, it's not even a real car. Um, that the, the cuteness becomes a punchline that means you know he he never had kids, right? He's not he's not married in this in this story. And in real life, Bester never had kids. He left his estate to his bartender. <laughs> I mean, that's funny, but it's also sad. Yeah. Okay, his let, let, let Manhattan you. lifestyle, you know, it, it's all glitz and glam. And then he's dead and his best friend's his bartender. Well, oh, when he married Raleigh, she was 18 years old. And as far as I can tell from a couple of secondary sources, she was at that point an aspiring actress. Mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. uh, she was an actress, both on radio and TV and uh, Broadway and a couple of even film roles. But pretty early on, she decided to uh, switch careers and ultimately became an advertising executive, uh, a significant one. Um, and Bester made it as a full time writer. He was a, a senior editor for uh, for uh, what's that travel magazine? Condé Holiday. Nest. Holiday. Holiday. Thank you. For holiday and uh, he, he wrote in all kinds of genres and they, they were making it as a couple but she was she was just 18 when he married her and they went through life together um, busy about their business mm-hmm. and and staying close to each other all the time didn't travel much but together when they did and then she died so uh, I can see that Vestra's life was an, an odd one and that brings me back to the question I wanted to ask you. This is a reading question, and I'm not sure how to deal with it. Um, there's a lot in this story that 
one could read, especially in in our 21st century eyes, as um, not so good. Uh, for instance, um, Bester says in the second paragraph, I invited my current girl, Martha. I mean, wow. I mean, he's not even assuming long-term relationship, right? As well, this was the girl I was dating mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I invited her, like maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't. Um, the Hungarian is up there making her way giddily um, by just accepting a long line of men. Uh, Gigi is basically a uh, a bauble that Tony um, pacifies by letting her do her social climbing, right? Because the talent is expected to entertain the guests. Um, the view of women here is really uh, not good. Um, you know, when, when Torchy says, uh, I'm, I don't want to ruin this best New Year's Eve I've ever had, what she means is I don't want to go into the bedroom and cause I know what happens if I go into the bedroom and women are really objectified here and Bester, I mean the character Bester clearly lives in a world in which the objectification of women is considered the norm. He considers it the norm. But since the story makes it so clear, at least to me with my 21st century eyes, makes it so clear that these women are being objectified. And the last paragraph does it stunningly. He sees her body and instead of thinking, oh, that poor girl, he thinks my New Year's is being stained. Mm. I, I, I cannot help but wonder, is Bester the author? giving us the chance to look at Bester, the character, and realize his shortcomings? Or is Bester, the author, just cobbling together pieces of Bester, the author's wife, and then stringing them into a well-constructed story with a fictional ending? That is, are we supposed to see this as a critique of a kind of lifestyle and view of gender relations that was pretty common in the 60s but we now reject uh these are hard questions eric i i I would say a lot of what we're seeing is is who the market is right so i i was telling you this came out of a magazine called rogue the subtitle for which was designed for men right Um, it is not designed for women in in the same way that you know uh a magazine I guess in the same period like Cosmopolitan was maybe designed for the whole household. Now, if it's still around, it's hard to tell if a magazine like Cosmopolitan is still around anymore, digital or whatever. Um, it's mostly it's for women, right? If if it's for anybody at all, <laughs> if it's still around today. Um, so marketing to men, it's marketing uh, a male view and a particular male view. And I think the women in here do come off as objectified, but they're also all playing a role, right? As he is Bester, the character, playing a role. He's playing the, uh, it's okay with me guy, right? And everything's not okay with him. It's it's clear it's not okay with him right from the beginning. His line about um, he didn't want to go to the party, so he brought his own, he you know started to make his own quiet little evening. He's going to make chicken a la king and some coffee and you know 
his current girl and another couple and he has all those stolen from him he says in the first paragraph it's a drag formal clothes formal manners champagne which i hate and the talented and the talent being forced to entertain the guests so this new year i decided to miss it and stay home and have a quiet party i invited my current girl martha and another couple bought a few magnums for them that's the champagne right which he right. hates <laughs> he bought it for That's, them yeah but he's bought and stocked up on whiskey for himself right. obviously. and and so he is he's already dissatisfied with the world as it is when he uh, finds out he, he's won a Stutz Bearcat which is a, a funny car to get in 1962 or 1963 um, it turns out that it's not even a Stutz Bearcat it's a mod you know it's a kid's Stats Bearcat, uh, designed for you know rolling around the backyard, and he doesn't have any kids. And then he goes to a party, t- chats up a nice Hungarian lady. Turns out that she's the entertainment, just like at the party he was trying to avoid. And she goes up the the conga, up the stairs, removing clothing. As the conga line chases after him, he doesn't join the conga line, right? He goes to the fraternity party. It's not his scene. Turns out there's a girl there who absolutely doesn't think it's her scene either. And yet he's not her scene, right? The description of her is, is I think, golden. Uh, and and the description of her end is so much more interesting in framing it that way. Listen to this. She was about 30 with acid red hair. That, that, I've never heard of that. Acid red hair. Cut short a sinewy active body and nervous hands she wore a sort of goldwyn folly spangled dress and gold pumps with bows she was alive and attractive as opposed to how she ends right but vulgar and common those those two things are the opposites right alive and attractive vulgar and common but kind of attractive right and her name turned out to be god save the mark and here the mark is him right torchy <laughs> that's not a person's name that's her stage name that's the name she has people called with her red hair right torchy was so naturally giving and receptive that she warmed me more than the fire she wanted to know all about the books and the records and the pictures and what i wrote and had traveled and did i have girls and what were they like and was i nice to them and was i nice to her after an hour right and then she she's like i'm i'm not gonna jump into your bed to use the phone and he's like, i'm a perfect gentleman right he says i'll go with you to make this phone call this is the best new year's i've ever had she whispered i'm beginning to think so too torchy this is a tragedy it doesn't feel that way at the beginning doesn't feel that way through to the last page until that knock comes but so you know, it's a pocket tragedy, but it's it's quite nice. It could be a novel. This whole plot, structurally, um, I've argued this, and actually in my first book, tragedy and joke are the same. What mm-hmm. separates them is style. Mm-hmm. They both depend upon that anticipated, but not. Um, inevitable reversal that suddenly lets us know that it's something else that was really going on all along. 
Um, and that's what we have here. It is a tragedy. It is. And I think Bester may have felt that as well, which perhaps he could lighten by putting his wife's ancestry into the character that he's going to turn away from because he doesn't want to see what can be wrong with women. He'd rather see what could be right with women. Um, but that doesn't prevent them from accident. Uh, it's a, it's a, a tough story. We can look at it in a lot of different ways, um, which I guess suggests there really is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.